can't be neutral on a moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was an excerpt from Writings on Disobedience and Democracy by Vinny Pass. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com. Find a link there to send me a message and some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. You can also follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. Luddites and Propaganda. First up is a piece written by Jason Sadowski. This piece is published at theconversation.com. I'm a Luddite. This is not a hesitant confession, but a proud proclamation. I'm also a social scientist who studies how new technologies affect politics, economics, and society. For me, Luddism is not a naive feeling, but a considered position. And once you know what Luddism actually stands for, I'm willing to bet you will be one too, or at least much more sympathetic to the Luddite cause than you think. Today the term is mostly lobbed as an insult. Take this example from a recent report by global consulting firm Accenture on why the healthcare industry should enthusiastically embrace artificial intelligence. Quote, Excessive caution can be detrimental, creating a Luddite culture of following the herd instead of forging forward. To be a Luddite is seen as synonymous with being primitive, backwards in your outlook, ignorant of innovation's wonders, and fearful of modern society. This all-or-nothing approach to debates about technology and society is based on severe misconceptions of the real history and politics of the original Luddites, English textile workers in the early 19th century, who under the cover of night destroyed weaving machines in protest to changes in their working conditions. Our circumstances today are more similar to theirs than it might seem, as new technologies are being used to transform our own working and social conditions. Think increases in employee surveillance during lockdowns, or exploitation by gig labor platforms. It's time we reconsider the lessons of Luddism. A brief and accurate history of Luddism. Even among other social scientists who study these kinds of critical questions about technology, the label of Luddite is still largely an ironic one. It's the kind of self-effacing thing you say when fumbling with screen sharing on Zoom during a presentation. Sorry, I'm such a Luddite. It wasn't until I learned the true origins of Luddism that I began sincerely to regard myself as one of them. The Luddites were a secret organization of workers who smashed machines in the textile factories of England in the early 1800s, a period of increasing industrialization, economic hardship due to expensive conflicts with France and the United States, 
and widespread unrest among the working class. They took their name from the apocryphal tale of Ned Ludd, a weaver's apprentice who supposedly smashed two knitting machines in a fit of rage. The contemporary usage of Luddite has the machine-smashing part correct, but that's about all it gets right. First, the Luddites were not indiscriminate. They were intentional and purposeful about which machines they smashed. They targeted those owned by manufacturers who were known to pay low wages, disregard workers' safety, and or speed up the pace of work. Even within a single factory, which would contain machines owned by different capitalists, some machines were destroyed and others pardoned, depending on the business practices of their owners. Second, the Luddites were not ignorant. Smashing machines was not a knee-jerk reaction to new technology, but a tactical response by workers based on their understanding of how owners were using those machines to make labor conditions more exploitative. As historian David Noble puts it, they understood, quote, technology in the present tense by analyzing its immediate material impacts and acting accordingly. Luddism was a working class movement opposed to the political consequences of industrial capitalism. The Luddites wanted technology to be deployed in ways that made work more humane and gave workers more autonomy. The bosses, on the other hand, wanted to drive down costs and increase productivity. Third, the Luddites were not against innovation. Many of the technologies they destroyed weren't even new inventions. As historian Adrian Randall points out, one machine they targeted, the gig mill, had been used for more than a century in textile manufacturing. Similarly, the power loom had been used for decades before the Luddite uprisings. It wasn't the invention of these machines that provoked the Luddites to action. They only banded together once factory owners began using these machines to displace and disempower workers. The factory owners won in the end. They succeeded in convincing the state to make, quote, frame-breaking, a treasonous crime, punishable by hanging. The army was sent in to break up and hunt down the Luddites. The Luddite rebellion lasted from 1811 to 1816, and today, as Randall puts it, it has become a cautionary moral tale. The story is told to discourage workers from resisting the march of capitalist progress, lest they too end up like the Luddites. Neo-Luddism Today, new technologies are being used to alter our lives, societies, and working conditions no less profoundly than mechanical looms were used to transform those of the original Luddites. The excesses of big tech companies, Amazon's inhumane exploitation of workers in warehouses driven by automation and machine vision, Uber's gig economy lobbying and disregard for labor law, Facebook's unchecked extraction of unprecedented amounts of user data, are driving a public backlash that may contain the seeds of a neo-Luddite movement. As Gavin Mueller writes in his new book on Luddism, our goal in taking up the Luddite banner should be, quote, to study and learn from the history of past struggles, to recover the voices from past movements so that they might inform current ones. What would Luddism look like today? It won't necessarily, or only, be a movement that takes up hammers against smart fridges, data servers, and e-commerce warehouses. 
Instead, it would treat technology as a political and economic phenomenon that deserves to be critically scrutinized and democratically governed, rather than a grab bag of neat apps and gadgets. In a recent article in Nature, my colleagues and I argued that data must be reclaimed from corporate gatekeepers and managed as a collective good by public institutions. This kind of argument is deeply informed by the Luddite ethos, calling for the hammer of antitrust to break up the tech oligopoly that currently controls how data is created, accessed, and used. A neo-Luddite movement would understand no technology is sacred in itself, but is only worthwhile insofar as it benefits society. It would confront the harms done by digital capitalism and seek to address them by giving people more power over the technological systems that structure their lives. This is what it means to be a Luddite today. Two centuries ago, Luddism was a rallying call used by the working class to build solidarity in the battle for their livelihoods and autonomy. And so too should Neo-Luddism be a banner that brings workers together in today's fight for those same rights. Join me in reclaiming the name of Ludd. This piece, I think, describes two really important concepts, one of which is history and knowing history, the second one of which is propaganda and um, the manipulation of history, which is is constant and and ever ongoing. Um, the history that is taught in most schools is carefully cherry-picked image of what happened in order to elicit a particular response from the students. When we cherry-pick and sanitize historical figures, historical events, or historical movements, people like Columbus or MLK, and teach them only in a very narrow way, we influence people to believe certain things and to follow a certain path. When you get a broader understanding, a wider understanding, a more diverse understanding of these individuals, these movements in history, you end up with a much broader view of what is possible. And for people in power, that is dangerous. That is why they control the message as heavily as they can. They influence us all to believe in certain ways, certain narrow ways, in order to keep us between between their guardrails, to not get out of their control or or out of their out of what is a safe space for them. Here is Cory Doctorow with some more on the Luddite movement. This piece is published at locusmag.com. From 1811 to 1816, a secret society styling themselves the Luddites smashed textile machinery in the mills of England. Today, we use Luddite as a pejorative, referencing to backwards anti-technology reactionaries. This proves that history really is written by the winners. 
In truth, the Luddites' cause wasn't the destruction of technology, no more than the Boston Tea Party's cause was the elimination of tea, or Al-Qaeda's cause was the end of civilian aviation. Smashing looms and stocking frames was the Luddites' tactic, not their goal. In truth, their goal was something closely related to science fiction, to challenge not the technology itself, but rather the social relations that governed its use. The critique of Luddism as anti-technology is as shallow a reading of the Luddites as a critique of science fiction as nothing more than speculation about the design of gadgets of varying degrees of plausibility. In truth, Luddism and science fiction concern themselves with the same questions, not merely what the technology does, but who it does it for and who it does it to. The Luddites were textile workers, skilled tradespeople who enjoyed comfortable lifestyles because they commanded a hefty portion of the money generated by the product of their labor. What's more, it took a lot of labor to weave fabric, and as a result, cloth was incredibly expensive, as were clothes naturally. The advent of the textile automation upended everything, didn't just reduce the amount of labor that went into a yard of cloth. It also created unprecedented demand for wool, leading to the mass eviction of the tenant farmers to make way for sheep, and cotton, supercharging global slavery. Textile automation also produced a lot of textiles, obviously. These were cheaper and often finer than the textiles they replaced, and transformed ready access to clothing of all sorts, from a luxury for elites, into something working people came to expect. You really couldn't ask for a more science fiction setup. Someone invents a couple of gadgets and everything changes. A whole industry of skilled workers is threatened. Ancient settlements are raised and replaced by sheep. Their residents turned into internal refugees wandering the land. Slavers sail around the world murdering and enslaving distant strangers to feed the machine. The entire material culture of a nation is transformed. Guerrilla warfare breaks out. Machines are smashed. Factories are put to the torch. Guerrillas are captured and publicly executed. Blood runs through the streets. The Luddites weren't exercised about automation. They didn't mind the proliferation of cheap textiles. History is mostly silent on whether they gave thought to the plight of tenant farmers at home or enslaved people abroad. What were they fighting about? the social relations governing the use of the new machines. These new machines could have allowed the existing workforce to produce far more cloth in far fewer hours at a much lower price while still paying these workers well. The lower per unit cost of finished cloth would be offset by the higher sales volume. And that volume could be produced in fewer hours. Instead, the owners of the factories, whose fortunes had been built on the labor of textile workers, chose to employ fewer workers, working the same long hours as before, at a lower rate than before, and pocketed the substantial savings. There is nothing natural about this arrangement. A Martian watching the Industrial Revolution unfold through the eyepiece of a powerful telescope could not tell you why the dividends from these machines should favor factory owners rather than factory workers. The Luddites did what every science fiction writer does. 
they took a technology and imagined all the different ways it could be used, who it could be used for, and whom it could be used against. They demanded the creation of a parallel universe in which the left fork was taken rather than the right. That is many things, but it is not technophobic. Using Luddite as a synonym for technophobe is an historically insupportable libel. We're living in quite a Luddite moment as it happens. Many of us are contesting the social relations surrounding our technologies. Should we continue to subsidize big agriculture? Should our cities continue to be organized around cars? Should tech giants be permitted to continue to gobble up each other and their small competitors, reducing the internet to, quote, five giant websites, each filled with screenshots of the other four, to quote Tom Eastman. Some of that contestation is taking place in the streets, some at the ballot box, some in boardrooms, some is happening at high-level meetings like COP26 in Glasgow. To mangle William Gibson's rallying cry, the street is desperately asserting its right to find its own use for things. Luddism is the key to resolving the tension in some of our most important labor and technology debates. For example, labor economists have long decried automation as de-skilling, a way to decompose skilled labor into a series of easy tasks, which weakens the bargaining position of workers by allowing employers to replace them more easily. But automation isn't solely disempowering. It also lifts people up. Today, thanks to automated machining tools like CNC mills, someone with very little training can do a lot of fine machining for themselves without having to bother a skilled machinist. Democratizing access to the means of production isn't intrinsically anti-labor. It's only bad for workers when the bounty of automation is disproportionately allocated to a small number of capital owners and not workers. The history of science fiction is rife with stories of people who seize the means of production. The classical problem story, in which an engineer has to figure out how to repurpose some machine or system to make it work in ways its creator never intended, is, at root, a story about technological self-determination. It's a story that says that the person who uses the machine matters more than the person who designed it or bought it. You don't have to go turn to cyberpunk to find this ethic. When a Heinlein character like Kip Russell uses duct tape and ingenuity to save his friend's life on the lunar surface in have spacesuit will travel. He's unilaterally remapping the social relations of the technology he depends on as a matter of life and death. Kip Russell is a Luddite, convinced that his own welfare is more important than the intentions and choices of the company that made his spacesuit. The difference between de-skilling and democratizing isn't what the gadget does. It's who it does it for and who it does it to. Imagining new ways of arranging those factors is profoundly science fictional. The Luddites weren't merely science fictional either. They took their name from King Ludd or Captain or General Ludd, a mythological titan who supposedly led their shadow army. The Luddites spun tall tales about this leader and signed his name to letters to the newspapers and to factory owners. King Ludd was a creature out of fantasy, an imaginary giant who was often depicted as towering over the factories that were the object of the Luddites' rage. 
a secret society bent on remaking the social relations for technology who claimed to be led by a mythological giant? That's fanish as hell. A golden age fantasy sci-fi crossover worthy of an ace double. And there are a lot of organizations following in this Luddite mold. Um, one of those is Fight for the Future, which focuses on technologies, web technologies, online technologies, data privacy, all of these uh, tools that we use every day for work and entertainment and how they can be designed to work for all of us and how the owners, the capitalists in this case, can be limited in how they can use these to harm us. And we heard about the propaganda related to the Luddites. That, of course, is only a tiny, tiny little bit of the propaganda that we face all the time today. This piece is published by Caitlin Johnstone at caitlinjohnstone.substack.com. Those who support internet censorship lack psychological maturity. Twitter has permanently suspended the personal account of Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene for what the platform calls, quote, repeated violations of our COVID-19 misinformation policy, much to the delight of liberals and pro-censorship leftists everywhere. This follows a Twitter ban of Dr. Robert Malone on the same grounds a few days prior, which followed an unbroken pattern of continually escalating and expanding censorship protocols ever since the 2016 U.S. election. In reality, nobody ever gets banned for, quote, COVID misinformation. That's just today's excuse. Before that, it was the follow-up from the Capitol riot. Before that, it was the election security. Before that, it was Russian disinformation, foreign influence ops, fake news, etc. In reality, the real agenda behind the normalization of internet censorship is the normalization of internet censorship itself. That's the real reason so many people get banned. I myself had already written many, many articles warning about the increasingly widespread use of internet censorship via algorithm manipulation and deplatforming long before the first, quote, COVID misinformation ban started happening. Arguably the most significant political moment in the U.S. since 9-11 and its aftermath was when liberal institutions decided that Trump's 2016 election was not a failure of status quo politics, but a failure of information control, which just so happened to align perfectly with the agendas of the ruling power structure to control the dominant narratives about what is going on in the world. We saw this exemplified in 2017 when Google, Facebook, and Twitter were called before the Senate Judiciary Committee and instructed to come up with a strategy, quote, to prevent the fomenting of discord. Quote, we all must act now on the social media battlefield to quell information rebellions that can quickly lead to violent confrontations and easily transform us into the divided states of America, the social media giants were told by think tanker and former FBI agent Clint Watts, who added, 
Stopping the false information artillery barrage landing on social media users comes only when those outlets distributing bogus stories are silenced. Silence the guns, and the barrage will end. Since that time, the coordination between those tech platforms and the U.S. government in determining whose voices should be silenced has gotten progressively more intimate. So now we have these giant platforms which people have come to rely on to share ideas and information, censoring speech in complete alignment with the will of the most powerful government on Earth. The danger of this is obvious to anyone who isn't a stunted emotional infant. The danger of government-tied monopolistic tech platforms controlling worldwide speech far outweighs the danger of whatever voice you might happen to dislike at any given moment. The only way for this not to be clear to you is if you are so psychologically maladjusted that you can't imagine anything bad coming from your personal preferences for human expression being imposed upon society by the most powerful institutions on earth. It really only takes the tiniest bit of personal growth to understand this. I, for example, absolutely hate QAnoners. Hate them, hate them, hate them. They always used to make my job annoying because they saw my criticisms of the mass media and the oligarchic empire as aligning with their view that Donald Trump was leading a righteous crusade against deep state. So they'd often clutter my comment sections with foam-brained idiocy that perfectly served the very power structures that I oppose. They saw me as on their side when in reality we had virtually nothing in common and couldn't really be more opposed. When QAnon accounts were purged from all mainstream social media platforms following the Capitol riot, it made my work significantly less irritating. I no longer had to share social media spaces with people I despised, and if I were an immature person, I would see this as an inherently good thing. But because I am a grown adult, I understand that the danger of giant monopolistic government-tied platforms controlling worldwide human speech to a greater and greater extent far outweighs the emotional ease I personally receive from their absence. Therefore, I would choose to allow QAnoners to voice their dopey nonsense freely on those platforms if it were up to me. Whatever damage they might do is vastly less destructive than allowing widespread communication to be regulated by powerful oligarchic institutions who amount to U.S. government proxies. The same is true of Marjorie Taylor Greene and everyone like her. This should not be an uncommon perspective. It doesn't require a lot of maturity to get this. It just requires some basic self-preservation and enough psychological growth to understand that the world should not be forced to align with your personal will. It says bad things about the future that even this kindergarten-level degree of insight has become rare in some circles. And the way that I've always dealt with this, with these individuals, these voices that I find to be objectionable, I find to be sometimes vile and hateful, is I ignore them. Now, I know that that is not the, the only course of action. Some people choose to engage with them 
in those folks who choose to engage with them in a way to try to counterbalance or counteract the influence they have, more power to you. I find for me personally, that would be an enormous waste of my time and energy and efforts. So by all means, if that is your passion, do it. But if it's not, there is so much work that needs to be done to make this society work for the betterment of all people that most of us cannot waste our time engaging in the bullshit. So my course of action is if I come across it, if I hear of it, if I see it, I, I move forward. I move on. I ignore it. I don't pursue it. I don't follow people who propagate those kinds of interactions significantly and where people that I do follow share that and if I've developed a relationship with them in which I think it is reasonable to do so I'll give them some pushback I'll say hey you know you're amplifying this crap there's better things that you could be doing with your time. Next up is a piece published at medialens.org. Manufacturing ignorance, keeping the public away from power. In their classic book on the news media, Manufacturing Consent, Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky presented a propaganda model of how the major broadcasters and newspapers operate. Whereas the quote, mainstream media declare that their aim is to educate, inform, and entertain the public. Their actual societal purpose on matters that are of significant significance for established power is to avert any danger that the public can assert meaningful control over the political process. As media analyst Lance Bennett wrote, quote, the public is exposed to powerful persuasive messages from above and is unable to communicate meaningfully through the media in response to these messages. Leaders have usurped enormous amounts of political power and reduced popular control over the political system by using the media to generate support, compliance, and just plain confusion among the public. Thus, rather than manufacturing public consent for elite policies and priorities, manufacturing public ignorance is the more desirable an effective goal. After all, explicit public consent is typically not required for the UK government, for example, to attack the welfare system, underfund and carve up the NHS for commercial purposes, sell arms to Saudi Arabia to bomb Yemeni civilians, saber-rattle in the Indo-Pacific to, quote, counter China, or increase its nuclear weapons arsenal by 40%. Significant public activism and opposition to state corporate power need to be rooted in widespread shared public knowledge. But in the absence of adequate public knowledge, and thus the reduced threat of an informed populace participating in a real democracy, power is more or less free to do as it pleases. 
Take a recent Reuters news report following the death of Colin Powell, one of the perpetrators of the supreme international crime of invading and occupying Iraq. Like a parody from the satirical website The Onion, the article was titled, quote, Powell remembered as one of the finest Americans never to be president. As Matt Kennard of Declassified UK noted, the wildest thing about Western establishment media is its journalists aren't even working under threat of prison or violence. They do state propaganda and sanitize our worst war criminals totally off their own back. Incredible discipline and dedication to serving power. And I will add there, totally off their own back isn't precisely accurate. The journalists who are working for significant news organizations are only working for those significant news organizations because they act in this way. And Noam Chomsky said this himself in an, in an interview with a journalist who said, you think I'm not an independent? I'm a journalist, blah, blah, blah. And Noam Chomsky said, well, you would not. If you held different opinions than you hold, then you would not be in the role that you are in because the people that allow you to be in that role wouldn't allow someone with different opinions to be in it. Recall that in February 2003, as U.S. and allies were preparing to invade Iraq, U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell had addressed the United Nations Security Council, dramatically holding up a small glass vial he said could contain anthrax, a biological weapon. Quote, Saddam Hussein and his regime will stop at nothing until something stops him, stated Powell, arguing that Iraq was deceiving U.N. weapons inspectors. He claimed that he was providing, quote, facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence. Powell's presentation was seemingly watertight based on supposedly undeniable evidence, and it was reported as such by an obedient mainstream news media across the globe. But it was all lies, and it is irrefutable that Powell consciously deceived the world, as U.S. political analyst John Schwartz noted. Around one million Iraqis died as a result of the invasion occupation, while many more millions became refugees, the country's infrastructure devastated. And several years later, the National Retail Federation had Colin Powell as their keynote speaker for their major event in New York City, in which the, the whole uh, theme was something to the effect of truth. With her customary sardonic wit, the Australian political writer Caitlin Johnstone, whom I just read previously and coincidentally will be reading again after this, described the infamous image of Powell holding a vial while addressing the UN Security Council as a viral anti-war meme. Quote, over the years, Powell's meme has been an invaluable asset for opponents of Western military interventionism and critics of U.S. propaganda narratives about empire-targeted nations, serving as a single-image debunk of any assertion that it is sensible to trust the claims U.S. officials make about any government that Washington doesn't like. For the benefit of credulous, power-friendly journalists and anyone else who believe that Powell had made just one mistake that he bitterly regretted for the rest of his life, she added, quote, 
Powell's other contributions to the world include covering up and participating in war crimes in Vietnam, facilitating atrocities in Central America, and destroying Iraqi civilian infrastructure in the Gulf War. But it's hard to dispute that his greatest lasting legacy will be his immortal reminder to future generations that there is never, ever a valid reason to trust anything U.S. officials tell us about a government they wish to bring down. She added, Be sure to remind everyone of Powell's sociopathic facilitation of human slaughter, often and loudly, in the coming hours. Public opinion is the only thing keeping Western war criminals from The Hague, after all, and those war criminals are keenly aware of this fact. At times like these, they suddenly become highly invested in making sure that regular people, quote, respect the dead, not because they respect any human alive or dead, but because they cannot allow the death to become an opportunity to amplify and change public opinion about their egregious, murderous crimes. The Persecution of Julian Assange As we have recently observed in media alerts, the state corporate media, including and especially BBC News, have been complicit in keeping the public largely ignorant about the case of Julian Assange. Likewise, the case's likely terrifying impact implications for further limiting public knowledge about what governments and big businesses actually get up to. As founder of WikiLeaks, Assange has probably done more than anyone in at least a generation to expose the war crimes of the U.S. and its allies. The revelations that the CIA had plans to kidnap or even kill Assange, almost entirely ignored by BBC News, has prompted concerned calls from advocates of, quote, press freedom, such as it is in the West. The American Civil Liberties Union, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Knight First Amendment Institute, Committee to Protect Journalists, and Reporters Without Borders are among the signatories of a letter demanding that the case against Assange be dropped. Nina Cross has examined the insidious role of the BBC in the state-sponsored persecution of Assange. First, in an overview of BBC history, she showed that, quote, Britain's most powerful national asset helps keep the British people in check while serving imperialism. In the case of Assange, BBC has helped to control the narratives around the stripping of Assange's asylum, typically presenting him as someone who is attempting to evade the law. Cross added that the BBC is serving, quote, the interests of the British state apparatus, enabling a culture of impunity by spoon-feeding its audience government narratives, manipulating perception, and promoting ridicule and disdain. The persecution of Assange that increasingly looks like a slow assassination by the UK and US authorities could not be so conceivable without a servile media. She continued, the impunity to persecute Assange has been enabled by the BBC through omission and silence. Instead of practicing journalism, it has turned a blind eye to abuses of the British authorities and those of its allies. The BBC's behavior is contrary, anti-journalism, anti-truth. This is not new. As Noam Chomsky has observed, governments will use whatever technology is available to combat their primary enemy, their own population. In this sense, BBC News is a form of technology that the UK government deploys to keep the British population away from the levers of power. The Illusion of a Democratic System Take the case of UK arms sales. A new film and report by Matt Kennard and Phil Miller of Declassified UK 
investigated the largely hidden role of a factory owned by arms exporter BAE Systems in the Lancashire village of Wharton. The factory supplies military equipment to the Saudi Arabian regime, enabling it to continue its devastating attacks on Yemen, which for years has been suffering the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Kennard and Miller noted that, quote, Boris Johnson recently visited Wharton and claimed the BAE site was part of his leveling up agenda. No journalist covering the visit seems to have reported the factory's role in a war. Back in London, Declassified UK interviewed Molly Mulready, who was a lawyer at the Foreign Office from 2014 to 2019. She was responsible for giving legal advice in relation to exporting arms to the Middle East. She said, quote, Boris Johnson was very casual and jokey when we would go in to talk to him about arms to Saudi Arabia. We would go in to brief him about Yemen, and he would joke around and waste everybody's time, and it was a bit mind-blowing because, you know, you're discussing civilian casualties. You're discussing the fact that innocent people have died and that British-supplied bombs have played a part in that. In 2017, Campaign Against Arms Trade took the UK government to court over the export of weaponry from places like Wharton to Saudi Arabia. Mulready was tasked with trying to defend the government, quote, something she now bitterly regrets. Clearly upset, she told Kennard and Miller, quote, I'm so ashamed that I had anything to do with it. There have been tens of thousands of civilians killed in the bombing, and there are millions of people who are food insecure. There are children in Yemen who are starving to death. The Saudis seem to have absolutely no compassion whatsoever. The arms sales violate the UK government's own licensing laws, Mulready believes, and contribute to Saudi war crimes. As Kennard and Miller concluded, yet they, UK arms sales, continue along with the weekly cargo flight we filmed. In a recent interview with Lowkey, the British rapper and political activist, Kennard said that in his work as a journalist, he wants to, quote, pierce the propaganda bubble. He emphasized the illusion of a democratic system in the UK. We do not live in a democracy. That's what people need to understand. This is not a democratic state. Britain is an oligarchy. On the tragic comic notion that, quote, Britain is a force for good in the world, he commented, it's an amazing mythology. It's mirrored by the U.S. They have this thing called American exceptionalism, which is how America operates very differently along principled lines, very differently to all superpowers. They don't deal with their own interests, etc. It's literally the intellectual level of about a five-year-old. Kennard continued, But the interesting thing about our society is you cannot work in any elite part of the intellectual industries unless you believe it. I'm looking every day at the reality of what Britain does in the world, and they are a force for reaction. They are a force for repression. They are a force for militarism. They're a force for destroying hope wherever it appears. They're a junior partner to the U.S., but they're actually an integral player, and the imperial operations of both are quite similar. What is the way ahead, then? Rather than looking for a savior such as labor centrist Sir Keir Starmer or Andy Burnham, Kennard suggested, quote, Let's focus on different strategies, for example, building extra parliamentary movements and understanding what labor's role in the British polity is, which is to support the British establishment and absorb the radical left and neutralize it, which is precisely the role of the Democratic Party. 
in the United States. There are no climate leaders. As we have often emphasized in our work in this era of worsening climate instability, time is rapidly running out. Climate activist Ben C. observes, quote, Very few people seem aware that we only have about three or four years left before the Earth's species start being smashed by catastrophic 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming in the context of toxic pollution, deforestation, etc. Perhaps our media and education systems are utterly inadequate, as Greta Thunberg put it. No one treats the crisis like a crisis. The existential warnings keep on drowning in a steady tide of greenwash and everyday media news flow. The truth is there are no climate leaders, not yet, at least not among high-income nations. The level of public awareness and the unprecedented pressure from the media that would be required for any real leadership to appear is still basically non-existent. The endless corporate drive to privatize the planet was highlighted in a recent article by journalist and researcher Whitney Webb titled Wall Street's Takeover of Nature Advances with Launch of New Asset Class. She reported, quote, Last month, the New York Stock Exchange announced it had developed a new asset class, an accompanying listing vehicle meant to preserve and restore the natural assets that ultimately underpin the ability for there to be life on Earth. Called the Natural Asset Company, or NAC, the vehicle will allow for the formation of specialized corporations, quote, that hold the rights to the ecosystem services produced on a given chunk of land, services like carbon sequestration or clean water. These NACs will then maintain, manage, and grow the natural assets they commodify with the end goal of maximizing the aspects of that natural asset that are deemed by the company to be profitable. Fuck this. Simply put, capitalists are seeking to control not just ecosystems as financial assets, but the rights that people around the world have to, quote, ecosystem services including the benefits that humans receive from nature. These include food production, tourism, clean water, biodiversity, pollination, carbon sequestration, and much more. The estimated monetary value of nature's, quote, assets have been priced at $4,000 trillion. Webb concluded, thus, NACs open up a new feeding ground for predatory Wall Street banks and financial institutions that will allow them to not just dominate the human economy, but the entire natural world. The obscenity of this is almost beyond belief. Randall Ray, a professor of economics in New York, warned, quote, From the get-go, capitalism has been all about exploitation. Marx's followers will point to exploitation of workers, but that's the tip of the iceberg. Capitalism originated in the large plantations of the New World, exploiting the slaves and Africa itself, which bore the burden of producing the humans that would be kidnapped and shipped across the seas to create the old world's wealth. It exploited the environment of America's seemingly infinite natural resources, abandoning the land it exhausted, moving ever westward in its genocidal conquest of the continent. It spewed its waste into the water, the air, and the bodies of creatures great and small, 
to put a money price on the formerly free communal resources so that it could exploit them to extinction. He added, Capitalism has always been celebrated for its presumed efficiency. In fact, it is supremely inefficient. It survives only because it is the greatest system ever developed for exploitation of man and nature. It pushes costs off to the environment, other people, families, governments, and our, quote, future. It is ever on the outlook for new frontiers of exploitation. And in that quest, human survival is at risk. Do not expect to be hearing much, if any, about all this from the state corporate media in the weeks, months, and years ahead, or however much time the Homo sapiens have left. And finally, another piece by Caitlin Johnstone. Maturity is realizing that propaganda isn't something that only happens to other people. I've been doing a lot of commentary on the Western propaganda campaign against China lately, so my online notifications have been full of brainwashed human livestock regurgitating all the lines they've been programmed to bleat about that nation by the very propaganda campaign I'm criticizing. What I find interesting is that it's not just coming from complete mainstream normies. A lot of the pushback I'm getting comes from people who've succeeded in seeing through other Western propaganda narratives on fronts like Russia, Syria, or Julian Assange. They're just as brainwashed about China as any uncritical consumer of TV news, but because they get their information from people like Tucker Carlson and other so-called right populists who have disputed those other narratives, they assume they are safe from mass media indoctrination. And a liberal who gets their information from the New York Times will look over at the Tucker Carlson viewer and tut-tut about Fox News propaganda, then go back to reading a fear-mongering article about how the Kremlin is militarizing Russian society. And both the Tucker Carlson viewer and the New York Times reader will look at nations like China and North Korea and shake their heads about how propagandized the people who live there are. Western mass media consumers are no less propagandized than North Koreans or any other nations we're told to pity because their government indoctrinates them with state media. In fact, they are arguably more propagandized, which is why Noam Chomsky said that any dictator would admire the uniformity and obedience of the U.S. media. The way the public is manipulated into consenting to all the agendas of the powerful without their even knowing that they are being propagandized has arguably been the most astonishing feat of social engineering anywhere in the world. Yesterday, I was listening to a podcast by commentator Carl Ja on the mistranslations and propaganda distortion the Western media have been engaging in regarding the Chinese tennis player Peng Shuai. And at around the 24-minute mark, Ja began discussing a peculiar point I've been noticing lately. The Chinese government is actually very bad at perception management. I can't speak to how effectively it is domestically, but when it comes to spinning controversies on the world stage, Chinese state media comes across as incredibly incompetent and ham-fisted compared to the skillful manipulations of Western spinmeisters. I'm 100% certain I could do a much better job running CGTN than its current operators if that was the sort of gig I was interested in. That's how bad it is. 
People have told me that China's ineptness at propaganda has to do with where it has historically placed its priorities, with its cultural disdain for the use of eloquent words as a substitute for action, and with the fact that a government who is free to use more overtly authoritarian force doesn't need as much skill at manufacturing consent, because consent is not as important. Whatever the reason, the fact that it's so far behind the West on that front shows just how sophisticated the science of modern Western propaganda has become. That's what we're all dealing with here as we try to figure out what's going on in our world. More than a century of progress in the science of mass-scale psychological manipulation. It's important to be aware of how advanced Western propaganda has become because propaganda only works if you're not aware it's happening. As soon as you're aware that someone is trying to manipulate you, all your critical faculties become engaged and all the information you're presented with is intensely scrutinized at arm's length. But if you don't know you're being manipulated, it slides right past your cognitive guard dogs unchecked. A big part of coming into true maturity as an individual is understanding on a deep, visceral level that propaganda isn't something that only happens to other people. It doesn't only happen in nations we're told are backwards and totalitarian. That's some of the propaganda. It doesn't only happen to people on the other side of the political spectrum. That's also part of the propaganda. It happens everywhere, including right where we're standing. Every issue about which public perception is of interest to the powerful is being manipulated by the powerful. Eastern and Western, left and right, mainstream media and alternative media, there's perception manipulation happening everywhere. The best we can hope to do in such a situation is refine our skill set at making sense of the world by continuing to learn, by watching the patterns and noticing the plot holes and discrepancies and where they're appearing, by building up sources of information which tend to be more reliable on important issues than others, and by continually doing inner work on ourselves to remove the distortions in our own cognitive processes. If we can manage to do that, we'll still be marinating in the propaganda narratives of the powerful all the time. But at least we will have some idea which way is up and we'll begin to perceive which direction humanity must begin heading in if we're able to become a species that is guided by the light of truth. And that will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com.